I'm assuming that uh, everyone here has at one point or another been in crisis. Maybe not, but if you haven't, you will. That's because uh, we live in bodies that uh, break down, they fail. Um, It's because the world that we live in is impacted by sin, and it's broken. As a result, there is no life, no human life that's lived that is not at some point or another beset with crisis. Some of you know that uh, about 10 years ago, I had a crisis of my own. Um, I was uh, obsessive compulsive, like really obsessive compulsive, not like funny haha obsessive compulsive. And um, it was one of the hardest times of my life. Uh, for personally, um, I remember you know, waking up every day and feeling um, anxious and not being able to control my own mind. I'm somebody who really values control. I like to feel like I'm in control of things. I like to feel like um, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And it was crazy because at this time in my life, I lost that. And it was crisis. It was one of the most challenging experiences of my life, and it was something I'll never forget. It colors in some way or another everything I do and believe. And in the middle of that, in the middle of that, where was God? We've been in First uh, John. We've been going through First John. We're uh, taking a break from First John today. Just to, um, just we're gonna be in Exodus. We're gonna be a part of a story that, that actually deals with this, this very thing, this, this issue of what happens to us when we go through crisis. And, and we want to answer a question. Is there a way to do it well? Because it will happen. One way or another, it's coming. Um, it may not happen to you. It may happen to a family member. But in the midst of that, you're going to be caught up in it. It may be something that you're not expecting. It may be something you can kind of see coming down the pike. But when it hits... It is going to upend everything. And there's a question. How do we make it through? What do we, what do, we do to, to, to get through crisis, to survive crisis, to thrive in the middle of, the, of crisis? How, is there a way we can prepare for it? Is there a way that we can kind of have uh, our ducks in a row to say that when it happens, we're going to be ready? Which is ironic and strange to think about because isn't crisis by its very nature something unexpected? When we um, go through the, the story today um, from the Old Testament, I think we're going to see, if we kind of peek underneath the hood and if we kind of look deeper into it beyond sort of just the surface of the story, I think we're going to see that this really is kind of a picture that God has provided for us of what it looks like for our lives now to prepare for and weather crisis. And so I, we're gonna we're gonna kind of go through it in pieces. We're gonna we're just gonna set it up. We're gonna we're gonna walk through the story, and we're gonna look at um, how it is that we where we are can go from here to there in the best way possible. Now, I'm not gonna say that what we're gonna do is fix your problems. Um, interestingly, there are very few. Sometimes, sometimes God comes in and just fixes problems. But more often than not, if you walk through the scriptures, you find that. That instead of just miraculously fixing things, although that happens from time to time, most of the time, God is looking for ways for us to be faithful in the midst of them and how to do them well. 
And so we're going to be looking at that today. Uh, to set the story for you, um, we're in Exodus. Uh, if you remember, uh, Exodus is the story of how the, the children of Israel, God's people, the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, have been liberated or are being liberated from captivity and slavery in Egypt. And they're headed to the promised land, the land of milk and honey, of, of happiness and joy. And even when they get there, things are problematic. But they're hoping, they're hoping, and they're in the middle of their, their journey right now. Really kind of the first part. They've gone through uh, some crazy stuff. Um, we'll talk a little bit about some of the stuff that they've been through. But they're now in the middle of the desert. And they're, they're, they're marching towards the promised land when we read um, that this happens. This is Exodus 17, um, verse 8. Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Um, I probably should have highlighted Rephidim. I, I have a picture here of, of, of Rephidim, possibly. We don't know exactly. The, um, the, the, the geography of the, of the Exodus is a little bit hard to figure out exactly. Um, but we think uh, this is probably uh, very close to where Rephidim was. And you can see it's a valley. Um, and wherever Rephidim actually was, it, it probably was a valley like this. And you saw the Amalek. Amalek was a tribe that was around the area. And you can see why they would have picked this place to beset Israel. Because if you're walking through, um, through the, the wilderness, you probably naturally kind of go at the, the base of a valley because it's easier. You don't have to go up and down mountains. And so Amalek uh, was ho- probably hiding in the hills um, on one side or the other. When they saw Israel come through, they just pounced. They pounced on Israel. If you want to see uh, where it is possibly, this next slide is a, a map of the Sinai Peninsula. Um, Cairo, Egypt is to the northwest. Um, that's probably kind of where they began. Um, where it says St. Catherine right there, kind of in the very, very dead center. That's pretty much what we think um, where uh, Rephidim is. And just to the south is Mount Sinai. If you remember Moses getting the Ten Commandments, that probably happened just a little bit to the south there. Um, but St. Catherine, there's a church now that um, is in this place. Uh, it's an, I think it's the Egyptian Coptic Church. It's been there for um, now thousands of years. Uh, and it's, it's in this place uh, where, um, where this story takes place, probably. So they're there, and uh, an Amalek comes up uh, after them. Now, if you're wondering about who Amalek is, um, we watched a movie last night, um, and it, it was crazy. It takes place in like the 1950s and 60s, and uh, there's this really amazing scene where um, a daughter of one of the, the characters comes in, and she's talking to her mother, and she says, well, today at school, we had to hide under our desks. Now, I remember doing this. I remember when I was a kid, uh, we used to hide under the desks occasionally. And that was because we live in California where there are earthquakes. And presumably, if the big one hits um, and, and California is literally sinking into the ocean, if you're hiding under your desk, you'll be safe. So, you know, Arizona is about to become beachfront property. But I'm okay because I'm underneath that really solid, you know, wooden desk. Well, I, apparently, so I guess back in the day, the, way they, the reason they came up with the hiding under your desk thing is not because of earthquakes, but because of nuclear war or the threat of it, a little thing called the Cold War. Now, I grew up in the, the you know, 80s. I, was, I think I was on fourth grade when the Berlin Wall came down. So, I mean, I have no recollection, no real physical memory of the Cold War. But during the Cold War, it seems as though everyone in the United States of America, more or less, lived in an environment where they were kind of scared. We were kind of scared that there was this big enemy out there, this, this nasty, this terrible, the Soviet Union, the Reds, the Commies. Now, to me, that's almost like a joke because I didn't live it. I didn't experience it. But, but from, the, from the post-war period all the way up until the fall of the, of the Berlin Wall, when that came down, there was like this, this nemesis 
of the United States of America, wherever the United States went, this Soviet Union was there to stop it. So, so Vietnam is a place where the United States was going to spread freedom and democracy, and the Soviet Union is going to spread totalitarianism and communism. And there's there a stop point there. And Cuba is another one. All over the world, um, and of course in Europe, they're, they're dividing lines where it's wherever, wherever the United States goes, wherever America tries to spread its influence, the Soviet Union is there to stop and counter and push back. If you're Israel... Your Soviet Union, your Reds, your Commies are Amalek, the Amalekites. I just want to show you just a couple of different um, things in the Bible. Amalek in the Bible. This is um, just, just a couple of snapshots. This is from Numbers. This is a little bit later um, from our story. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword because you've turned away from Yahweh, the, and Yahweh will not be with you. Just FYI, whenever you see the capitals for Lord, that's, um, they're covering up the Hebrew for the, God's special name, Yahweh. And so that's just what that means. But um, the, you've turned away from Yahweh, and so the Amalekites, they're going to get you. They're going to come after you. Um, in Judges, so now that they're in the promised land, the, the, the children of Israel have made it through the desert, the wilderness, they're in the promised land. We read this. So it was whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up. Also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. You notice, uh, sown. So what the Amalekites would do is they would wait for Israel, the, the farmers in Israel, to plant their seeds, right? And it, you have a very narrow, it's not, this isn't California, perpetual summer with the exception of this year. Uh, th- this is, where you actually have to plant like at the right time of year. And so you, you plant, right? And the Amalekites would wait. Wait for the, the seeds to germinate, the, the, the crops get going there. So it's too late to replant. And then they would come and burn the, uh, the Israelite farms in order to deprive them of food, to weaken their place in the land, to kick them out, to get rid of them. The Amalekites were kind of sneaky, kind of tactical, kind of backwards, uh, in the dark, always looking for a way to get Israel out, to, to beat Israel down. First uh, Samuel uh, 14, Saul gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. The Amalekites were known as raiders and pirates and thieves. This is interesting. Saul was actually uh, anointed king, but he didn't really become king in the eyes of the people until this, this moment where he goes and he beats this terrible enemy, this enemy that's always at their back, always planting a knife between their shoulder blades. When, when Saul does that, he becomes in the eyes of the people the true, legitimate king of Israel. Of course, the, um, the worst of all the Amalekites. This is Esther 3.1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. Agagite, King Agag, was the guy that Saul defeated. He was an Amalekite. And his descendant is Haman, who comes to power in the empire. And he's sort of a proto-Gerbils, a proto-Hitler. He literally makes it his mission to destroy the Jews, exterminate them, and wipe them from the earth. As we're walking through the scriptures, whenever we see the word Amalek, Amalekite, Agag, what we should immediately think, and this is the first thing in your note sheets, is, is these are the people who symbolize those who would disrupt God's plans for his people. And, and at the beginning, they're just a tribe. And then by the time of Esther, they've become this, this malevolent force, almost blood feud, the, the Soviet Union to the United States of America, and they are absolutely bent fixed 
on eliminating God's plans for his people. And they come in whenever they can and they disrupt those things and move them and shake them and break them so that the people of God cannot do what they have been called to do. There are Amalekites today. They have different names. Now sometimes they're called cancer. Sometimes they're called greed. Sometimes they are called terrorism, fear. They are called the people that you know in your, li- in your life who absolutely detest what you stand for and who get in your face about it. They are the people who look at the, the mission that you have been given by God and say, I will not stand for that. I am going to get in the way. I am going to disrupt it. They are the people and the circumstances and the experiences that cause crisis in our lives. Just because Amalek has been wiped away from the earth, there are no more Amalekites by blood. There are spiritual Amalekites. And when we see them in scripture, we can look at them as symbolizing something theological that's happening. When God is going after what God is going after, the enemy gets upset. The enemy gets engaged. And the enemy seeks to disrupt what God is after. See, friends, we tend to think, we tend to think, and I'm the same as, as, as everyone. I mean, when, when I was sitting there, and, and man, I couldn't, my mind was going crazy, and I, I, it was a, a disastrous time for me. And what was interesting is I wasn't sitting there thinking like, like man, I, I wonder how this is affecting other people. <laughs> I was sitting there going, what, what about me? What about me, God? Why is this happening to me? Never realizing, never recognizing the fact that not only was I being impacted, but so was my family, my friends, my networks. The very things I had been called by God to do were being disrupted by this thing that was going on in my life. And similarly, it's not just you and your, and your experience that's being disrupted by crisis, friends. It is also the mission you have been put on earth to do, to go for. Whatever it is that God's called you to, that is being disrupted when you are moving into and through a crisis situation. And so it's not just about our personal experience. It's also about the eternal things that we have been called for. Brothers and sisters, friends, I... I am not trying to denigrate tragedy, and I'm not trying to say that the tragedy isn't really tragic and really hard. It is. It's horrible. I speak from experience, and I know that many of you have have been and are walking through that now. But it's not only bad because of how it hurts. It's also bad because we have in this life, this short little life, a chance to do eternal things, things that matter. And those can get pushed up and, 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 and moved aside and broken and train wrecked all because we don't know how exactly to deal with the crises we're in. Let's look back at the text here. So Amalek comes and they're fighting with Israel at Rephidim. They sweep down uh, from the hills and they're, they're routing the Israelites. And Moses says to Joshua, his general, Choose some men for us and go fight with Amalek. Tomorrow, I'll stand on top of the hill with a shepherd's rod of God in my hands. So Joshua did as Moses told him. He fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel would start winning the battle. Whenever Moses lowered his hand, Amalek would start winning. It's a cool staff. I don't know if you, if you do you have mental pictures of Moses. For those of you, we'll see him in a second. Charlton Heston. For those of you who are 
coasters. <laughs> I've never seen it. I've seen stills. I mean, I just, like I said, 1977, if it's before that, eh. Those movies, no, no thanks. But, uh, but if you're imagining Moses, you probably picture him as like, you know, a dude with a big white beard, big long white hair. And every time you think about it, he's got that staff in his hand. Here's a couple of images of, of Moses, right? Because you're thinking about the Red Sea, right? And if you remember in the story, uh, God calls him, raise up your staff and part the Red Sea. It's cool. He's got a, he's got a neat magic wand, sort of. And then uh, the, the story that's right before the one that we're in right now, um, Moses takes his staff and God tells him to like smack the rock. We're going to look at it in a second. But he like strikes the rock uh, with it. And we have a picture of that too, I think. Yeah, right there. And like, and, like water comes out of the rock. Uh, that looks like a wall. Uh, that's probably not, there probably weren't a lot of walls in the wilderness, but, you know, artistic license. Artists are good people, too. Uh, so that's, you know, what he did. And then, and then and in our story, it's, it's Charlton, right? It's, uh, it's, I mean, that guy looks like Moses. I mean, wow. Seriously. I think he's actually parting the Red Sea in that scene. Like I said, I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know. Um, but in our, in our, right now, he's up at the top of the hill, and he's, he's got his staff. And you might start to feel like, as you're reading the story, and you're starting to think about Moses, you're, you might start to think that Moses is a little bit like this guy, like Gandalf, right? Where is he? Gandalf. Aha! Ooh. If you've seen Lord of the Rings, Gandalf has a cool staff, and he can blow on it. It lights up. He can, like, hit people with it, and they, they, they fly away. Um, it's a little bit Harry Potter, kind of. It's like he's got a magic stick, and he can do neat things with it. We might start to think, as we're we- reading through the story, that God, you know, can imbue stuff with these special powers. Right. I don't think that's exactly what's going on. And, and, and there's, it's important that we recognize this. Important. Because as human beings, we, um, we tend to want to imbue stuff with power. We want to we believe that things have power and that we can seize it and hold on to it and, and manipulate it. Like if we could just get uh, the, right, the right thing and the right token. For those of you who play sports, if we just keep wearing the same pair of underwear, we know we're going to win. <laughs> because it's got power, right? Um, I, I would never wear underwear for more than three days in a row. And... And if I do that, I guarantee you I'm going to turn them inside out on the middle day because I'm classy. Oh, yeah, you're laughing because there's no guy here who's done that. No, absolutely not. Have none of you were single at any point in your life? Give me a break. We all did it. Okay, it was just me. I'm gross. That's fine. Cool. We, we, we tend to have these, the, we almost have totems, right? Well, look, look at it. This is, um, it's, 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 worth, it's worth just checking this out because it, I, I want to I wanna disabuse us of this notion uh, about the rod of God. This is right before um, our text. And, and, um, and, and, and this is what it says. The Lord said to Moses, go on before the people. Take with you some of the elders. Take in your hand your rod, right? The cool rod. You struck the river. You can do neat things with it. Behold, this is important. I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. And you will strike the rock, the water will come out of it, people will drink. So he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because the children of Israel argued with and tested the Lord, saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? The staff is a reminder that God gives the people. It's a reminder that he's with them. It's a sign to them that he's not going to give up on them. Do you notice how he said that? He didn't say, use your magic staff and break open the rock. He said, I will go before you. I will be there. 
And then you're going to have this symbol, and, and it's going to do this thing. And, 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 and then the interesting thing is the people had said, God has abandoned us. Yahweh's not with us. Meribah and, and, um, and uh, Masa and Meribah mean uh, tested or um, argued. They argued with God. They tested God. And so it was commemorated. It, God, God's still with us, right? Isn't he? He's abandoned us. No, no, no. He's with us. And, and if, if you remember, every time you see the staff, you'll remember it. Imagine... If you are walking down a dark alley at night in a sketchy part of town, and a couple of people are behind you, and they don't look like nice folks. In fact, they're wearing, you know, big baggy clothes, and they look like me from circa, you know, 2000, right? Long hair, earring, you know, they're, they're probably tatted up, right? And they're following you, they're shuffling, they're getting a little bit close, a little bit too close for comfort, and you're getting a little bit worried, and then you look down at the end of the alley, and you see the profile of a man, and the moonlight hits and you see his badge the police badge you're like oh i'm safe i'm safe because now i know that somebody with power is here someone who can protect me is here now imagine that it's a plain clothes p- police officer you see a guy at the end of the the, the road oh goodness it's another guy and he's dressed that you don't feel any different right you don't see that he's he's on your side you don't see the symbol right but the power is still there the symbol, the badge, is a reminder to you. It's a sign to you that, 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 that this person is on your side. This, this person can protect you. This person's going to make sure everything's okay. Whether you see the badge or not, the truth remains. The cop is there. You are protected. But seeing it gives you some kind of peace, some kind of knowledge of the situation. Similarly, the, the rod of God, the staff of God, is a reminder to people. It symbolizes for them who God is and what God has done. This is the next thing on your note sheets. The, the, the rod uh, uh, of God, theologically, it symbolizes his presence with his people. It symbolizes their relationship with him. When they see that rod, they remember, God didn't abandon us. Yahweh is with us. It symbolizes that he's with them and he's not giving up on them. And so I think, well, we'll talk about it in a second, I think that what happens in this story has to do a lot with us and our perception of the way we handle crisis and not a lot with what God's up to. I don't think God changes. I don't think God moves or, does, or, or suddenly abandons us. I don't think God is, is running off all the time. God is always here with us, but we can't always see it because we miss the rod. We miss the symbol, and we start to forget without that reminder that he's there. So Moses, he's up there, and he's, he's using the rod. And so I think he's, when he's raising it up, he's standing up strong, I think the Israelites see him. And I think they're like, yes, God's with us. Moses is standing up. He's strong. He's our leader. We can fight. We can win. And then when he starts to lower his staff, they look, and, and they start to get discouraged, and they start to lose. I think it's about them. I don't think there's magic staff, you know, Harry Potter style. I don't think that's what's going on. I think it's the people are looking for their leadership. They're looking for the one that they know represents God to them, and, and they, stop, they see him faltering, and they start to fail. They start to fade. God's still there. God's am, am, amongst them in their midst of crisis, and yet they can't perceive it. Verse 12, Moses' hands grew tired. So they took a stone and put it under him so he could sit down on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on each side of him, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. 
Moses brought staff support. I worked so hard for that pun. Come on. I've been setting that up for literally like 30 minutes. Terrible. All right, great. I'm not going to give you a whole bunch of jokes with puns. I could, but I'm not going to. Why is Piglet always so dirty? Because he likes to play with poo. Nothing. Okay. All right. All right. Tough crowd. I can deal with that. That's fine. Moses brought his staff support. Moses brought Aaron and her. If you know who Aaron is, Aaron's Moses' older brother, right? Um, He's he's uh, he's been with Moses since the very beginning. We're not exactly sure who her is. we have some ideas. He gets uh, the name gets mentioned a couple times in the scriptures. Possibly the father of Caleb, uh, one of the spies and generals in, in the Israel army. In the rabbinic literature, we find out that Hur might have been uh, um, Miriam, Moses' sister's husband, possibly his or her son, maybe his nephew. Whatever the case, we're not exactly sure who uh, her is, but we do know this: he was an important part of Moses' life. He was related to him, or at least a trusted friend, an advisor of some kind, somebody that he could depend on—a buddy, a pal. And, and one that had been with him for a long time. And of course, Aaron, I mean, Aaron's the guy that Moses, did, Moses didn't like public speaking. So he's like, Aaron, you do it. Tough job for Aaron. Aaron's no fun. No fun being that guy. He's kind of like Moses' patsy. Whenever Moses is doing something, he's like, Aaron, you take care of the tough stuff. I'll uh, go hang out with God. True fact. Tough to be Aaron. But Aaron keeps staying with him. He's always with him. Loyal, dependable. And, and also invested in the mission that Moses is on. And the people of Israel are on. And so Moses is sitting up there, and he's starting to lose strength. And Aaron and her are looking at him, and they're like, okay, here we go. And so um, I was actually planning one version of this. I was going to hold out like a Bible the entire time and just see how long I could do it. Um, but I tried it, and I lasted for about 40 seconds. And so I was thinking it might be really awkward to have like Doug like holding my arms up. The entire sermon, really distracting. But you can imagine. So he's starting to fade. And these, and these two guys, they, they run up, they sit him down, and then they literally put themselves underneath his arms so, so that he can, he can keep that thing up so the people of Israel continue to know. They, they remember, they see that God is with them and that they are not abandoned and that they are going to win. I wonder, I wonder if... Sometimes when we're facing crisis, we're doing it alone. I can't uh, speak for everyone here, but I know that, that the times that I've been in crisis, my first and initial and long-standing reaction is to hide. Is to go solo. Because I'm afraid that, that y'all can't handle where I'm at. Because I'm ashamed. Because I'm scared. And I wonder if the same thing doesn't happen in all of our lives. When, when crisis hits, if we don't retreat and we don't start going it alone, because that's our natural inclination. And I wonder if when that happens, we start to flag, we start to lose sight of the fact that God is with us. You see, friends, it's awesome. When, when, when things are going great, we know that God's with us, right? When things are awesome, we know God's with us. When we're blessed and we've got you know, wealth and prosperity and all that, we're like, well, God's blessing me because he's with me and he loves me. And, and, and things are great. But as soon as something goes wrong, that's when the questions begin. That's when we start to wonder, well, is he really... Is God really invested in this life? Or did he just take off at the first sign of danger? Why did God let this happen? Or since God let this happen, why didn't he provide me the resources and the necessary you know, presence or feelings or whatever to get through it? Why isn't God here? We only ask that 
when things are bad. And then when things are good, we forget him. The people of Israel have just had water come out of a rock. God gave them water to drink. And now the Amalekites descend on them and they're wondering again if God's really with them. And so it takes two people, Aaron and Hur, to stand up there and remind them. Moses can't do it himself. He's not enough on his own. He needs someone there with him. And what are these people like? This is the next thing in your note sheets. Uh, in times of crisis, staff support reminds us of God's presence. Right? Aaron and her are sitting there, and, and people can see the staff. They, they're reminded that God's with them. That they deepen our understanding. They, 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 they help us recognize that we're not alone, that, that we can start to see the curvature of God's plan because we're caught in the middle of crisis. And these are the people who aren't caught in the middle of it. They're outsiders. They have a better sense of what's going on. And then they can encourage our faith. I really believe that the, Am- the Amalekites were going to win. And the Israelites saw that staff up. And they said, we got this. And they put those guys to the sword. So are you developing your staff support? I'm not going to do a raise, uh, uh, I'm not going to make you raise your hands um, because it puts you on the spot, but ask yourself this. Do I have health insurance? Now, the reason I don't want you to raise your hands is because if the answer is no, you're in violation of the law. You're a criminal. Yeah, there's a law that's been passed, and now if you don't have health insurance, you get fined or taxed. Or, I don't know, apparently the Supreme Court said it was one or the other, I can't remember which. But the point is, if you don't have health insurance, you're naughty. Now, the reason they want you to have health insurance is because they know, the government knows, that sooner or later, this body of yours is going to break down. And when that happens, they want you to have been paying in so that you can get the care that you need. It kind of makes sense. Your staff support is your crisis insurance. It's the people that you, 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 pay your, you pay your premiums. I know, this is a little bit self-interested. I'm, I'm appealing to your selfishness. When you, if you know that you're going to go through crisis, if you know that it's going to happen at some point, boy, you better have your insurance with you. You better have these, these, these relationships of people around you who are dependable, who are loyal, who care about you and who care about God, who are going to come alongside you and walk through it with you. and, And when you're spending time now developing those relationships, that is the same thing as paying your premiums on your health insurance. It's you getting ready. If you're just going to be, look, I, I love people. I, I know some of you don't. I like people. So I kind of enjoy spending time with them for the most part. You can get on my nerves occasionally, but for the most part, I like people. It's fun, right? I know there are some of you who don't, but here's the deal. If you don't invest now, it's like not paying your premium. And when the crisis hits, there's not going to be an Aaron and a herd there. Your staff is going to fall. You're going to lose the battle because you're alone. And you won't be able to see the truth that God is with you. You're going to forget. You're going to be caught up in the crisis. You're going to be lost in the crisis. And you're not going to be able to see that God is there. God is real. And he is with you. And he's not giving up on you. You need people around you who will hold you in that. Develop your staff support. The last thing in your notes is do it now. Invest now in people. And then when the crisis hits, they will be with you. I'm not 
pretending that this is easy. People let you down. It's scary to open up. I've been very fortunate in my life to have a lot of friends over the years who I really trust, who really have been there for me. And I know that a lot of you have been hurt. You've opened yourselves up. You've tried to, to be real with people, and they just they stabbed you in the back. I want to suggest that you were looking in the wrong place for your staff support. If you're thinking about where your staff support is going to come from, don't, you need to look that way and that way, right, and this way and that way, right now. It's this group of people who can be your staff support. These are people who are faithful. These are people who don't quit. These are people who are dependable and loyal. They're here week in, week out, because they know God's power, and they've experienced God's power, and they're not going to give up. If you're looking for the people who will be at your side when the chips are down, the one that you want to have in your corner, you look left, right, forward, and back, and you're going to see them. It's no joke to me when I say, sign up for a small group. It's not a joke because um, in my own times of crisis, um, I had a very small group of people that I felt comfortable opening up to, being honest with, and saying, this is who I am, this is where I'm at, and I don't know if I can make it. And those people were there, and they held me in my faith. They held me fast. They loved me. They encouraged me in the midst of it. And they said, we're going to walk through it together. If you don't have that, the small group is the place to start. It's not just, you know, a relationship. Because not only are these small groups going to be places where you do develop relationships, they are, that happens. But it's also places where you start to learn more about what it means to be a person of faith. You get to know God better. Your, your understanding of who God is deepens. So it's, it's not just a, a staff support in the sense of, of getting people around you to protect you. It's also staff support in the sense of getting to know who God is in a deep and powerful way so that when the crisis hits, you're going to know who he is, really. You're going to know who, what he's like and what he's done. And so you don't have to be afraid. And you don't have to walk alone. Some of you are like, I got tons of staff support. I'm so popular. I was going to name names, but I won't, Scott. <laughs> I, I, I hear you. You have. You've been here for a long time. You've got deep roots, and you have a network of support, and, and I know that you're, that you're safe and you're protected. But hey, pay it forward. Really. Because there are people out here that God is calling you to be their network of support, their need. And God's calling you to meet them and, and, and get to know them and to be a part of their lives so that when they go through crisis, you're going to be the one that they lean on. That is an eternal thing. It's not something that just, you know, fades. The stuff that you do in this life will not be forgotten. It will be remembered in the kingdom of God. And so you have an opportunity by being involved in these relationships to dig those roots down deep and, and prepare yourself for the next life to... to be rewarded as somebody who gave up some of their own time and, and energy and experience in order to do what God had called them to do. So whether you've got staff support or whether you don't, sign up for a small group. 
And okay, all right, some of you don't have to sign up for small groups because, you know, you, if you're already doing like a regular Bible study, great. Just so long as you've got that, that network of people and you're developing it, I'm happy, I'm happy. But also, seriously, sign up for a small group too. If you, you've got extra time. It's not like we live in a busy culture. I mean, everyone's just running around bored all the time. Well, here's a way you can fill up all those empty extra hours. You can come to a small group. Uh, we've, got a ton, we've got a ton of different ones. I mean, we've got, um, we got the, the Diet Coke and Cake. Um, I can't remember what book they're doing. I think it's Bad Girls of the Bible. I almost want to go find out who these, who these ladies are. Um, you know, uh, uh, Pat and Bonnie have their Wednesday morning study. Um, Aaron's doing God-Centered Mom uh, based on Heather Mac- uh, McDonald's something uh, podcast. I'm doing um, uh, Guys Night Out. Uh, you know, so it's not, uh, people were wondering, is it just going to be poker? No, it's not just going to be poker. We're also going to talk a little bit about the Lord. <laughs> before we play poker. Um, we, there, we have a lot of different opportunities. Go back there, check it out, and, and seriously think, do you have staff support? And if not, sign up, invest in it. Because it's the difference between whether or not you make it through crisis as God intended or if crisis overcomes you. Don't lose that battle. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for the the power of people that you put in our lives. We thank you for the power of your spirit who binds us and unites us and, and gives us deep and lasting eternal relationships. God, I pray that those who don't have staff support, that they will find in this place people who are loyal and dependable, who seek their good and seek your good. For those who are deeply embedded in those relationships already, God, I pray that they will reach out and open themselves up to offer that to others, to outsiders, to welcome them in and to encourage them and deepen them, strengthen them. And in that, God, in these relationships, I pray most of all, God, that we will see you, remember your presence, remember your power, be encouraged by your spirit, that we will win the battles that have been set before us in your name. In that name we pray, amen.